Let's pray. No other name has power to save except your name, Lord Jesus. We are the privileged ones who have responded to your call, to your conviction, the Holy Spirit, convicting us of our sins and turning us to righteousness because we trust you, Lord Jesus. You have saved us. You've given us power. You've given us a message, especially now, Lord, how the world which is in panic, needs to hear this message. Not just to relieve them of their panic, but Lord, as they, have re, have, as they know now, something is dreadfully wrong with this world. Lord, there are, there are unseen germs that are killing people. There's also a rhetoric that's being ratcheted up. There's a lot of, 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 of heightened emotion And Lord, something is dreadfully wrong. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would have your will and your way done in the lives of all those who do not know you. Lord, use this, 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 this storyline, this, 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 this death stuff to help them to understand how much they need you. We're not asking, Lord, that you would automatically take it all away, but we're asking that your will be done, that you would use it, that you might be honored and glorified in it. And we will give you thanks and praise because you are the only wise God. You're the all-powerful one. And now, Lord, I pray that as we open up your word to 1 Corinthians 6, help us to see once again how much we need to be unified. I pray that your spirit will work in our lives today. Thank you, Lord, for what you will do with it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there was a popular song back in the 1980s. It's called Dirty Laundry. Maybe you've heard that song. According to one comment about the song, it's about the callousness of TV news reporting and the tabloidization of all news. Don Henley sings from the standpoint of a news anchorman who, quote, I could have been an actor, but I wound up here, and thus is not a real journalist. The song's theme is that TV news coverage coverage focuses too much on negative and sensational views and news. In particular, deaths, disasters, and scandals with little regard to the consequences or for what is important. Now, if it was that way in the 80s, it is much so now, much more so, because it's no secret that according to their own words, that many, if not most journalists, see their job as not to report the news, but to form and shape public opinion. I recently heard a comment about this. Those who control the narrative controls the culture. That is power. Today, we're not going to bash journalists, though, but we are going to talk about hanging out dirty laundry. The Corinthian Christians did so back in their day. And if you remember last week's message, we covered 1 Corinthians 5. We saw that some of their laundry that they hung out was filthy. It was like they were competing with the pagan culture around them to see who would 
be the first to get to the bottom of the moral slime pit. Paul has said that he heard some, from some reputable news outlets, some news reports about them regarding a sin that even their pagan neighbors did not engage in. That a man was having sexual relations with his stepmother. And they were proud of that as a church. They were puffed up. And they let the world know how welcoming, how inclusive they were about this sinning couple. We saw how Paul was livid. And he told them to wash their laundry with strong soap through exercising church discipline. In 1 Corinthians 5.13, Paul tells them explicitly, get rid of the evil man among you. In our passage for today, we see Paul dealing with some more dirty laundry. Only this time it was not immorality. But it did contribute to the same thing that he had been addressing since the opening words of this first letter in the Corinthian correspondence. And that issue is disunity. See, remember how Paul was very pointed about their preferring one spiritual leader over another. And the leaders of these groups were putting their guy on a high pedestal. It was becoming intense in their fellowship, so much so that the church showed signs of splitting in the groups, like the Paulites and the Apollosites and so on. And Paul told them in no uncertain terms, stop it, your boasting in man is not good. You exist as a local church because the Lord Jesus has set you apart. He is the Lord. If you're going to boast in anybody, then y'all with one voice need to boast in him, not in your guy, in the Lord. Today's passage, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 11. I encourage you to open your Bibles if you haven't gotten there yet, either paper or pixel. I encourage you to do that. So we're going to go through some things today. And uh, keep your fingers there in 1 Corinthians 6. We're going to go around a couple passages in Scripture today as well. But 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 11, we find Paul telling the Corinthians to deal with their dirty laundry among themselves, behind closed doors. See, it wasn't just the spiritual leaders which the devil tried to use to split the church. Now it was a difficulty that Christians had regarding civil matters. Things that they could not reconcile over. And so what did they do? What many even today do. They find arbitration. They found arbitration. Pagans outside the local church fellowship. Civil courts. And so Paul deals with their inviting the unrighteous judges to settle the disputes of the saints. And that was a bad thing. In this passage, we see Paul making two points. In verses 1 to the first part of verse 9, we see Paul's description of the problem. Taking their disputes to the pagans rather than to other Christians to be voices of wisdom and reason as the Christians seek to settle their differences. Then in the second part of verse 9 through verse 11, we see why Paul considered it such a problem. It was primarily that pagans do not have access to divine wisdom. And so that begs the question. Why would Christians hang out their relatively minor differences in front of the watching world? Because what they're doing is they're showing the unsaved how disunified the Christians have become. Remember Paul's first question he raised in the first chapter of this letter? 
He asked this question. He said, is Christ divided? Well, the answer to that is obviously no. But the Corinthian correspondence so far, it sure seemed like Christ is. And Paul is dealing with this over and over again. So let's read verse 1 through the first part of verse 9 in 1 Corinthians 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, if you follow these verses carefully, you would be struck by the sheer number of questions that Paul asked here. Let me just list them. One, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Number two, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Number three, if you're going to judge the world, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Number four, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Number five, why do you lay them, as in matters of this life, before those who have no standing in the church? In other words, the pagans. Number six, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Number seven, why not rather suffer wrong? Number eight, why not rather be defrauded? And number nine, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? There's a lot of questions that Paul is throwing at these guys. And like a prosecuting attorney, Paul brings up the issue up close and personal to the Corinthian church, and he spits out nine questions related to, as he calls them, trivial matters, matters pertaining to this life. And to be sure, they're not minor disagreements like, you know, and, and just hurt feelings. No, they are likely issues that were civil in nature, like as one commentator puts it, legal possessions, breach of contract, damages, fraud and minor injuries, civil matters rather than criminal. These are pretty big deals, and they're more than just kind of hurt feelings. And that's basically what Paul was, was talking about here. These were things that happened between brothers in the church, and they needed to take care of them. And the Corinthian believers apparently thought that they needed to operate in default mode, civil court. Now, it looks sensible, logical on the surface, you know, one human being suing another human being over damages that require some kind of settlement. That looks logical. That looks like normal. But for Paul, these lawsuits were mere symptoms of a bigger problem. 
disunity among believers. He sees these kinds of things in a much different light than the Corinthian believers do. Paul sees their disunity before a pagan world as a much bigger issue than even settling of church disputes or civil disputes between them. And so Paul here unfolds, I believe, profound insight into the lives of the Corinthians. And I see Paul here implying two things. First, the Corinthian believers forgot what he and others taught them about their new life in Christ. See, part of their new life came with a new reality, and that God was grooming them to actually judge nations during the millennial reign of Christ. In other words, this life is not all there is. I think they forgot that. Paul's second insight is that it's at the heart of the issue of their disunity throughout, not just this issue, but throughout this letter, their failure to empty themselves of themselves. In other words, Paul was pointing out here their self-interest. In these nine questions in this chapter, three of them begin with these words, do you not know? Did you pick up on that? The way that these are put together imply a reminder of what they already knew and may have even forgotten. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? See, these were issues that Paul and others taught the Corinthian believers at some time in the past. And, you know, Jesus actually told his disciples that his people will indeed judge the world. In Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, truly I say to you, he was talking specifically to Peter, but he was including all of them. I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. They are going to be involved in the judging process. Because the saints will rule and reign with Christ, it was also understood in those days that his people will judge angels, as in fallen angels. In Daniel's vision, we see God's saints are going to rule and reign and judge the world. In Daniel 7, 21 and 22, he says, As I looked, this horn, which is commonly referred to as the Antichrist, made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Again, it was understood that they were going to be judging angels there too. In verse 9, Paul reminded the Corinthian Christians of their new nature. They were righteous. They were set apart unto the Lord. But the civil judges, now they were pagan. They were unrighteous. They lived lifestyles that were wicked. And some of them did also in their B.C. days. So what was Paul's point to the Corinthians? Simply put this way, why do you, Christians, future judges of the world and of angels, take your civil matters to pagans? Can't you figure these things out? Can't you settle these things among yourselves? You have access to divine wisdom. They don't. What are you doing? So Paul gave them a strong reminder of their future role. They will judge the world. He also gave them a strong reminder of how inept 
the pagans were to fully and wisely arbitrate their issues. So now Paul turns to some practical matters, though, of fleshing these things out, beginning with the first question. If a brother has a grievance against his brother, how dare he bring it before the pagans instead of before the saints? In essence, Paul told them, Christians, since you're going to judge the world, why are you entrusting the judgment of your issues to those who you will eventually judge? Doesn't make sense, guys. Guys, you're going to be judging far more significant issues than these in everyday ordinary matters. Later on, it's going to be far more significant. Isn't there a wise person anywhere among you that you can entrust to help you get through your civil differences? Anybody at all? But Paul gave them a much bigger spiritual uh, picture of spiritual reality than they saw. But tragically, they were so caught up in this life and they considered their issues so important that they lost sight of the reality that this life is not all there is. They also seemed to forget how important it was to set a unified witness to the world. And here's where Paul hit them the hardest. In fact, he deliberately wrote what he wrote, the way that he wrote it, to shame them. That's what he says here. Notice in verses 5 and 6, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Then he hits them right in the heart. Remember how they lived in a culture that highly valued honor, and they practically ran from shame. So look at verses 7 and 8. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Paul wanted to shame them. And how about you? But if I lived in that culture and he was writing that to me, I would feel profound shame. I would realize that I was putting my own self-interest ahead of Christ's interests. And what is his interest? A holy, unified witness before the watching world. That would have made me hang my head if I would have been accused of that. What about you? Paul would have labeled me as part of those who literally, utterly failed in our mission to show unity and love among ourselves to the watching world around us. The first, it was probably displaying sexual immorality of the most repulsive kind. And now, disunity, this dirty laundry for all to see. We're in a world of hurt. So how to plug up the holes of this sinking ship of witness failure? Deal with the challenging questions that Paul posed to them. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Ah, but listen. Do you hear those voices? Do you hear them? They are the voices of protest from across the miles and down through the centuries. And it reflects our own nature, doesn't it? Paul, do you mean that you would actually have me prefer to being wronged? 
Do you really want me to be cheated? I would rather be cheated out of what is rightfully mine. Are you kidding me, Paul? Well, Paul was not kidding. See, he detected the heart of this issue regarding lawsuits, and that was fullness. Fullness of self, fullness of exercising one's rights, fullness of me being in first place. See, they heard from day one the gospel of Jesus Christ, the true gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified. They heard that in order for their sins to be forgiven and put right with God, that the Messiah, the God-man, the Lord Jesus had to go to the cross as a perfect lamb of God and offer himself as a perfect sacrifice for their sins and ours. Wonderful, wonderful news, isn't it? And though the gospel is the most wonderful news ever, it is our response to it that is often most difficult. I think of Jesus' words in Luke 9, 23 to 25. And by the way, when Jesus spoke these words, it wasn't just to the disciples who wanted a quote-unquote deeper life. This was everybody he was talking to. If anyone would come after me, he says, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily. Follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what is the profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Is this not what it means to believe, really? Now, one thing I've been struck with lately in my devotional reading and my meditation is how important that we understand the identity of Jesus. It is our trust in the person of Jesus that is most important. So John tells us the purpose for his writing his gospel in John 20, 30, and 31. Now, Jesus did many signs, other signs, in the presence of his disciples that were not written in this book. But these were written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Believing what? <laughs> believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Notice that salvation is found in who Jesus is. The fact that it took his death to forgive us of our sins is obviously significant. But salvation is found in the person of Jesus, who he is, the authority that he has. And that certainly applies not only for the Corinthian believers, but for us as well. See, Jesus told us what to do, didn't he? Deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow him. Now, obviously, that does not mean physical crosses, does it? And we look over here to my right, to your left, a cross. It's heavy. You pull it out of its stand, it's heavy. Now, he doesn't mean necessarily that we take up a physical cross like this, although he may require it of us as he has required it of many of his choice servants down through the years and the centuries, like our brothers and sisters in India today. But Paul describes what taking up our cross looks like among believers in in Philippi. So let's go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. I want us to turn there. I want us to have us put our eyes on the text of this, this inspired text of Paul, When he himself was in in prison, under house arrest, he was telling the Philippians 
This is what it looks like to take up your cross and follow Jesus in the midst of brothers and sisters. Here's what he says. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to, he says, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, who is our life, is also our living example. Jesus, the second person of the blessed Trinity, emptied himself and became a servant even to the least of mankind. He allowed himself to be punished and killed, and gloriously God raised him to life three days later. Hallelujah! Now let's apply these challenging questions posed by Paul to the Corinthians. Now pose them to Jesus. You think Jesus was wronged? I think so. Was he defrauded? Yeah. Who wronged and defrauded him? Was it his enemies? Absolutely. How many pages of the Gospels do we not have a record of the Pharisees and the scribes plotting to arrest him and mistreat him and even kill him? But let's go further. What about his closest companions, his apostles? Did they wrong him, defraud him? Goes without saying, doesn't it? So what is Paul getting at here? Painful circumstances, even at the hands of our fellow Christians, challenge us, even reveal to us how much further we have to go, don't we, to be like Jesus. Let's forget the trite saying, WWJD. Remember that? What would Jesus do? See, it's more like what character would Jesus display during painful times? That's what we're after even times of betrayal by brothers and sisters or those who say they're brothers and sisters. See, trials don't make us or break us, do they? They reveal us. They reveal who we really are. Back to the text. Here is Paul's bottom line. Work out your differences in the body of Christ for the sake of your witness to the world. Let's experience the power of going beyond the meme of the day, the meme that we as Americans practically have ingrained into our DNA. And what is it when we're wronged? I don't get mad. I get even. Paul's reasoning, though, for keeping civil disputes in-house is not only to preserve the witness of the unity to the pagan world, but just as important, the pagans don't have access to divine wisdom. They're on their own. Wisdom of the world, that's all they have. In his ninth question in this passage, remember Paul asking, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? When it comes to the practical matters of pagans deciding civil disputes, 
This is a sober warning. Paul's reasoning here is one of wisdom. In essence, he's asking, how can you, as God's people, entrust your issues to those who see the things of God as foolishness? How can you do that? You're taking a big risk, you know. Even in our day, we see how uncertain things are in the court system. Do we not? Take the issue of child custody. A Christian couple with three kids goes to divorce court. The wife has been committing adultery for years. In spite of his faithfulness and his and his kids pleading with her and application of church discipline, they wind up in front of a thoroughly non-Christian female judge. She's new in town. Few people know her, but she has a past. She's been horribly abused by men, and that has resulted in her always taking the side of the mother, regardless of how irresponsible she is. You know of any scenarios like that? When this case is presented with all of its ugly details, the custody of the kids is awarded to who? Mom. We say miscarriage of justice, and rightly so. But the judge does not have access to divine wisdom. And hearts are broken even more than what would have been otherwise if the judge was a committed Christian and decisions were based on divine wisdom. Now, I'm not saying that all judges are bad. Please hear me on this. I'm, not also, I'm also not saying that courts are not necessary even among Christians. But let's make sure we do everything that we can to reconcile our differences with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's Paul's point here. It was the failure of Christians in the church in Corinth to see a bigger picture, or worse yet, their refusal to see that unity before a watching world is a top priority. And tragically, the Corinthian believers were so caught up in exercising their rights in this life that they forgot they were being groomed for bigger and better things in the next life. Let's be about the business of truly seeking the welfare of one another, even if we find ourselves being on the short end of being wronged or even defrauded. And by the way, when we wrong and defraud one another, what do we do? Practice church discipline like we do for just about everything else, don't we? Now, I'm not talking about criminal issues, criminal matters. That's another subject entirely. We're not going to go there today, but I'm talking about civil disputes. So let me touch on verses 9-11, and then I want to speak briefly about the government, our response to it, and particularly to COVID-19. And Paul tells the Corinthians, do not be deceived, neither the, the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, or the greedy, or drunkards, or revilers, or swindlers. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Here we see Paul reminding the Corinthian believers of the lifestyles that some of them had in their B.C. days. You know what I mean when I say B.C. days, right? Non-Christians, before they became Christians. Some of them were sexually immoral in both the homosexual and the heterosexual realm. They were idol worshipers. They were thieves and greedy and drunkards. They were abusive and mean-spirited. That's what a reviler is. 
Some of them were swindlers. They made it their business to think of ingenious ways to filch people out of their resources. Quite the list, don't you think? And he reminds the believers that those in the pagan world who have no access to divine wisdom to settle civilian disputes are by nature no better than they. As it's been said, Christians are not better off than a pagan. Or or Christians are not better than a pagan. They are just better off. Christians then and now have been washed by the blood of Jesus. We have been set apart. We've been declared holy. God has declared to us to be in a right relationship with him. All because of who we're associated with. See, God has saved us by the name of Jesus and by the Spirit of God. It's by the Holy Spirit. So Corinthians, empty yourselves of yourselves. Continue to take up your cross. Continue to follow Jesus. For the sake of love among yourselves and the witness to the watching world, refuse to hang your dirty laundry for out, out for all to see. Take care of it in-house is the point of 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 11. And I think it's time for me, it's appropriate for me to talk a little bit now about the role of government and about our interaction and and those kinds of things about the COVID-19 things. Not going to be long, but I think that we need to keep in mind, first of all, who the ultimate authority is. And who is it? It's God. He's the ultimate authority. See, Psalm 24.1 is still in effect. Always has been, always will be. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. In other words, God is in charge. His almighty power takes care of everything that is his. And he owns everything. Isn't that true? Nothing escapes his notice, even this current pandemic. Our God is good and he's kind, especially to his people. Our God is holy and righteous and well as well, not willing that any perish but that all come to repentance. Since the first days, this virus has been unleashed on the world. Through whatever means, there's been one panic story after another. Would you agree with that? People are indeed dying by the thousands worldwide. Governments at all levels have made declarations and ordinances and have forced compliance. From total lockdowns to social distancing, look around, we see this, don't we? (laughs) Most every person on the planet has been affected by government at some level. Now, of course, this has also impacted economic concerns in every country just about. Most of us are now watching our bank accounts and our our mailboxes for what? The four digits that are coming in that have been promised to us. Many people are beginning to feel the sting of layoffs, though. Next week, Kitty and I are going to be celebrating 40th anniversary. We're not able to go to a nice restaurant. We're going to get takeout, I think, at Outback or whatever. But the 40-year anniversary only comes around once. And all of this and so much more is old news, isn't it? None of us can escape this. How can we? We have a 24-hour news cycle by every news outlet. But in the midst of all the panic and horror stories, I want to empower you today. I want to empower you to cling to the hope that the Lord gives. And I want to do it with two points. First, number one, we are to pay attention to what our government agencies and officials tell us, unless they tell us to disobey the Lord. As we know, in many countries, it is illegal to preach Jesus. I just read the other day in the New York Times, believe it or not, I've actually 
begun to look at the New York Times. <laughs> and they have actually reported that Christians, evangelical Christians, are to blame for the pandemic, of all things, right? But the point here is, see, and, and, and I look at that and I say, you know what? It's par for the course of New York Times. I laugh it off. But the point here is that there could come a day when people with power to enact laws that could take this rhetoric seriously and outlaw all things Christian under the guise of hate speech. And should that happen, what do we do? Do we stop? Not on your life. We continue obeying the Lord, our King. And as, as it's been said, to smilingly wash our hands of the consequences and keep on serving Him, even if it means the cost of our freedom or our livelihood. We continue to serve Him. And how this applies to us is that we are, though, to obey the laws of the land that, we have, been, that have been enacted concerning the COVID-19. No more than 10 together, social distancing, etc., until, at least for us in Virginia, the governor rescinds the order. Second, and here's where the hope lies. Let's keep separate who we are to believe and what we are to obey. Two different things. Who we're to believe and what we're to obey. Scripture tells us that we are to obey the government. Romans 13, 1 to 6 makes that clear. But just because the government makes laws does not mean that we have to implicitly believe everything they tell us. We don't have to believe everything that comes out of their mouths. We obey them, but we don't have to believe everything that they say and what they say about the virus, for example. And why is that? Simply put, government as an entity does not have access to divine wisdom, just like the pagan judges back in the Corinthians days. But we're all tempted, aren't we? We're all tempted to wholeheartedly believe that a government official has the truth just because it's a government official. And the more shrill and sensational the news article, even produced by Fox in conjunction with the government, the more we tend to believe it, don't we? And before we know it, after seeing panic story after panic story, we begin to assume that we're going to die by the millions. But that is not true. That is not true. Is COVID-19 something to be concerned about? Go like this. It is. We've got to be concerned about it. Do we take care of ourselves and not expose people to it if we know that we have it? We don't do that, do we? By all means, we take care of ourselves. We, we separate ourselves from that if we know that we have it. But is COVID-19 by itself prove as deadly as a seasonal flu? No, it does not. Let me give you just two statistics. During the last flu season, 2018-2019, according to the World Health Organization, about 20% of the world's population was infected with the seasonal flu. How many people is that? About 1.4 billion people were affected with the flu. Seasonal flu. Out of the 1.4 billion, 260,000 people died from the flu or flu-related. And 2018 and 2019 was not unusual. It was a typical year. These are typical figures. But we as a planet are not concerned. We're not concerned with the 260,000 last year, not nearly as we are concerned about the 30 or so that thousand have died this year from the COVID virus worldwide so far. 
And by the way, this year alone, in our country alone, 36 million people have been infected with the seasonal flu. 23,000 have died from it. Do we hear anything about that? And let's not forget the 56 million people worldwide who have died at the hands of the abortionist. Just last year alone. Do we hear anything about that? No, we celebrate that, don't we? So I'm saying, as your pastor, in the midst of panic and chaos, we can have hope. How? Choose to believe God in his goodness. Just because a government official says we have to panic, refuse to believe that. Believe what God says and what he gives to his people. Isaiah 26, 3 tells us, you keep him in perfect peace. How? Whose mind is stayed on you. Why? Because he trusts in you. Paul instructs us in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what's the result if we do that right? If we really do, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When it comes to informing ourselves about the pandemic, we are to do our homework. There are enough trustworthy sources to get at the truth of the matter. And can I let you in on a little secret? Just us. It's just us here. The government does not have a corner on the truth when it comes to COVID-19. Did you know that? I say this because there is conflicting information even among government officials. And let's not assume that a government official always has our best interests at heart. And let's not assume that their motives are pure as a driven snow. For example, House Majority Whip Representative James Clyburn reportedly was told to more than, or reportedly told this, more than 200 members of the House Democratic Caucus on a recent conference call that the Democratic Party should exploit the corona stimulus. Quote, this is a tremendous opportunity to restructure things to fit our vision. And apparently, House Speaker Pelosi tried to provide funding for Planned Parenthood at one point in the process of putting together the $2 trillion aid package. And there's even talk of another aid package coming out about COVID-19. And even with the passage that, uh, pa- package that President Trump signed into law, it still took the House and the Senate and him to sign off on this. Is this one package, let alone phase four, going to bankrupt us? We don't know. Time will tell. The point is, we don't need to live in fear, even with everything that we hear. Let's take a clue from the early Christians and how they responded to the massive plagues of the second and third century. It was said of them that they had a casual disregard for death. Let that sink in, a casual disregard for death. And I will add, it's not that they were not nervous about dying. They were humans after all, right? What I'm talking about is the fear that cripples a person into self-preservation self-preservation, or inaction. But why were they ultimately not afraid to die? Because they knew where they were going. What was then and what is now the devil's most powerful weapon that he has against humanity? 
the fear of death. Jesus has taken away the fear of death in the Christian as he or she walks closely with the Lord. And with the fear of death taken away, the Christian can then run into the danger, not full-heartedly or to show how spiritual he or she is. See, we don't let the fear of death cripple us into not helping others for Jesus' sake. We need to do our homework. We need to make our own conclusions. We need to take precautions. We need to obey the laws which don't conflict with the laws of God. But above all, we can exhibit and we need to exhibit the confidence that our Lord is over all. And we can even obey the command that God, the Apostle Paul, gave us when he himself was in not so pleasant circumstances. And here's what he says. Rejoice in the Lord always. And just so the reader would not miss it, Paul repeated the command. Again, I will say what? Rejoice. Let's rejoice. Not in the world and what's going on. Rejoice where? In him, in the Lord. Let the world know that the true and living God reigns. We will choose to believe this for the glory of God and for the sake of Christ. Let's pray. What a good word you give us, Lord. You tell us frail, scared people not to be afraid. Over and over again, you tell us. The Apostle Paul wanted to come to Corinth and to find out not just the rhetoric of people, but their power. And Lord, you've given us power. Power to choose to not to believe the hype. The power to choose to to find out the, the actual truth about everything that's going on in our world today, including the COVID virus. You've given us power to live according to the truth of your word and to reject lies, to reject what's going on of, of not just this virus and not the, the, the hype that people are willing to, to put out to make us afraid, but, Lord, the truth about ourselves and, and Lord, to reject the lies about ourselves. Lord Jesus, so often people... We, we look at ourselves and we say, how could you save us? How could you love us? And because we're asking that question, we conclude that you don't love us. We conclude that you, that you haven't saved us if we place our faith and trust in you and turn from our sins. We think that we are too evil and too wicked to be saved. But Lord Jesus, through the Apostle Paul, you said that you came to die for sinners. And we are all sinners. And all of us, I think, could echo what Paul says. I'm the chief of sinners. Lord, we sin every day, unfortunately. We disappoint you every day. But we thank you, Lord Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins that we find in you. On the cross, you said it's, it's finished. Paid in full completely. And Lord, you called us as followers of yours into the church. The local church that you have basically put together as almost like a learning laboratory of grooming us for the next life because you told us that we're going to be judging the world. We're going to be judging angels. And if that's going to happen in our lives, if that reality is going to come upon us, can we not take care of our trivial matters here on earth? Trivial matters that we, that we experience day to day. So Lord, I pray for each one of us. If we're having problems with our brothers and sisters, help us, Lord, to put them down. 
Help us, Lord, to seek reconciliation. Help us, Lord, to make the first move. Help us, Lord, to love you enough to do that. Thank you, Lord, for dying for us. Thank you, Lord, for living for us. Thank you, Lord, for being our example, our living example of of what it is like to empty yourself. Lord, help us to allow others to be more significant than ourselves. Help us to put ourselves last. Even as it says, as as others have said, uh, joy really is Jesus first, others second, and ourselves last. So Lord, help us to live that way. And now I pray, Lord, as we as we bring the message, as we bring the service to a close, as we sing one more song, that, Lord, you help us to go out of here with a sense of rejoicing, a sense of confidence that you are in charge and you love us and you, Lord, own it all and you take care of everything that's yours. We're going to thank you and we're going to praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.